Technical Sergeant Kendrick with Sergeant Pearson of Clarksville, and uh, definitely here to kind of ask him some things about himself and hopefully help you all out, future recruiters out there and current recruiters, with some good information on how to maybe improve your your zone. So, Sergeant Pearson, how you doing today? Not bad, man. How are you? Okay, I'm doing great. Uh, glad to be in your zone. It seems to be a great zone on the outside looking in. It's a lot of restaurants and big attractions, but sure you have a different story about your zone what is your zone like so uh, it's not bad no it definitely has that like appeal like whenever you drive in we're right here on a main drag uh i mean louisville is five minutes away we're, we're super close to a major city um but just the dynamics of how this area works like looks can definitely be deceiving you know the the river creates a major barrier so we don't get any overflow you know people from louisville don't really come to southern indiana and uh, vice versa people from southern indiana don't really cross over to louisville uh, you go five minutes up the interstate from here, and it's farmland. Like it gets extremely rural, and there's just not a lot going on out here. Um, you know, we are the hub. Like this is where people come to do things. But you know, fast food restaurants and everything like that are few and far between once you leave here. So when you drive this main stretch, if you don't know the area, you look and you think you're in like a major metropolitan area. Um, but the deeper you get into it, you realize that this is basically just like the last band uh, of civilization before you get out to some you know really rural areas really small schools really, that, that sort of thing it's you know uh not economically prosperous <laughs> the, fur the further out you get so it's an interesting demographic and um you know, spending time in this office, if you, if you talk about just market that we're working with, I mean, there's times you'll go a week and the phone won't ring. You know, we, we don't have walk-ins really just based off of where our office sits and things like that. So um, it, it looks nice, and it is. I enjoy the area, but but looks can be deceiving. There's a lot more going on here than, than what you would think as you drive by Target and Best Buy and stuff like that. Definitely. And where are you from? Uh, originally, I'm from uh, Glasgow, Kentucky. Uh, it's a small town down near Mammoth Cave. Um, the closest real city is probably Bowling Green. Uh, that's usually what I tell people. I'm from Bowling Green, but a uh, small area. You know, I grew up out in the country. You know, I had to drive 10 minutes to, to get to the nearest gas station or grocery store. Uh, Walmart was another 30 minutes past that. You know, legitimately going to a, a mall. Like if you wanted to shop and do American Eagle or something like that in high school, uh, you were driving an hour, hour and 15 minutes. So I came from an area that doesn't look too different from what this area looks like i grew up kind of in the middle of nowhere so the further out into my zone i get the, the more familiar it looks for sure well a little bit about yourself i mean from being from that small area in kentucky uh how was your life or you know a little bit about your upbringing so I, I grew up in a, a, a pretty conservative household. Um, I was raised by a single parent, so uh, there was definitely some struggles from that. We, we didn't grow up with, with money. Um, I, you know, I, I lived in a trailer until I was in college. Like me going to college was the first time I lived in something that wasn't transported onto our property on wheels. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, and that, that was common where I'm from being out in the, the sticks, being out in that like rural area, like you didn't see much else. It was very normal to us. Uh, I, I didn't have a lot of perspective growing up that, that I was poor, but you know, being older now and, and living a little more life and, and traveling around the world, I've seen like you know, compared to a lot of the rest of the United States, the area that I grew up in is is not the norm in, in America in a lot of places. And, and I did grow up, you know, pretty poor, and, and especially being having a single mom, you know, one income, you know, she worked a lot and had a lot going on. So uh, definitely had some struggles. I mean, 
super tight family unit, you know, really raised on, you know, the, the core values that we learned in the Air Force were things that were instilled in me from the very beginning. Those are things that I didn't necessarily have to learn when I came in because, you know, mom encouraged them in me, <laughs> whatever the method was for that. I mean, it was things that I, I knew from the start. Definitely. I mean, I can totally uh, resonate and agree. Um, grew up similar, maybe not in a small uh, town from a big city, you know, but uh, definitely helps you and kind of, you know, shapes the kind of person you are. So uh, like me, me having that upbringing kind of, I guess, made me a good fit for the Air Force. How did somebody from a small town or from your upbringing make it into the Air Force? So for me, I was kind of a late in life, you know, coming in. Uh, I didn't join until I was 23. So it, it wasn't uh, the transition that we encourage a lot of the, the applicants we work with. You know, we're trying to get them at that young level, 17, 18 years old, still in high school. Uh, I went out and, and lived life a little bit before I came in. I, you know, I went to college, um, spent about three years in college, uh, went to a couple different schools, changed my major a couple times. Um, but that, that was my goal. Like, I never... At high school, never really even considered the military. I had phenomenal grades and, you know, just, you know, was academically sound. So a thing that I just knew I was going to do from the start was go to college. Uh, there was never any question in my mind about that. I didn't think that the military was for me. Um, college was a, a challenging experience for me in a lot of ways. You know, you know, high school was easy. Uh, I didn't have to work very hard. I didn't have to like try or study. So it kind of just happened sort of, I was able to get through and do really well. Well, college wasn't the same way. There's a totally different set of skills you need to be successful in college. And I had never developed those. Um, also growing up in a conservative household, getting away from mom and some of those strict rules and accountability that I had, like I, you know, party more than I should have. And, you know, I enjoyed the funner side of college, you know, like that, the things in, in college that can derail you. Like I, I partook, I was a hundred percent invested in, in, in being social and being involved in, in getting out and doing those kind of things. And, and the, the more you party, the less you focus on your studies. So uh, college was not not a successful <laughs> adventure for me at, at the end of the day. So once I got out of school, um, I had to really start looking at like what I was going to do with my life. Like what? How do I fix the mess that I've made? Forty thousand dollars in student loans and and no light at the end of the tunnel for getting out of that. I, I didn't really have a marketable skill. Um, I was working some dead end jobs. I worked at a, a call center and stuff like that and got up to like some middle management type positions at those lower levels, but it wasn't anything you build a life around. Like the C I basically hit the ceiling for all that stuff and it wasn't fulfilling. So uh, I had some family members that had served. My grandfather served in the air force, um, back in the the forties and, and my cousin and aunt had, had done four year stints and, and, and they all kind of gave me the same thing. It's like, if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know where you're going, this can give you that it, it'll give you direction. My grandfather always said it'll make or break you. And, and maybe in the forties, that was true. I don't, I don't know that the air force is necessarily breaking people <laughs> nowadays, but I, I mean, I, I got what he meant by that. So when it came time for me to like really figure it out and like, know like what the next step is, like this was the, the first thing that I, I went and looked for because all the other things that I thought I knew and I had tried failed. Uh, and I was trying to take too much control on my own. So when it came time to, you know, kind of release that, I, I knew that if I came into this, it would give me direction. I'll either know a hundred percent what I'm doing, uh, or I'll figure out exactly what I don't want to do. It'll at least shine some of that light on it. So, so that, that was my path to it, you know, trial and error with a bunch of different things that I thought would make me successful. Uh, and none of them did at the end of the day, I had a bunch of debt. So coming into this was 
I was supposed to be a short-term thing. I came in saying up till three and a half years, I said, I'm going to do four years and I'm going to get out. I had every intentions of just jumping ship and taking my benefits and running. But the longer I stayed, the more I appreciated what I had and the more I started to like it and was given opportunities to thrive within it. So uh, I, w- I was able to finally, you know, yeah, about six years in, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm staying. Like, th- this is me. Like, I, it became part of my identity. Like, outside of the Air Force now, I, I don't 100% know who I would be or what I would do because this is such a big part of my life. Absolutely. And how many years has it been since you've been in? Uh, I'm about a month shy of 10 years right now. So, almost halfway there. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'll be 33 in like two months. So, we're, we're, we're getting close. Like, 10 years. You're on the halfway point almost. Okay, awesome. So definitely some good information to, to know a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of figure out some things. And I understand that you started off as maintenance, correct? Right. I was a, a C-130 crew chief. So, um, you know, the progression for that, I mean, as a whole, it's just a, an all-purpose mechanic. You know, I worked on planes. That's what that's what I tell people that don't necessarily know my AFSC or, like, what we did. If I was talking to my mom, like, she has no idea what I do. She just knows that I work on airplanes. Um, you know, in the beginning, I, I put gas on them and oxygen and, and inspected them and checked them. But it, it progressed throughout that. I worked a lot of different details within maintenance as a crew chief. I got the opportunity to fly uh, for a while and got to travel and see and do maintenance out on the road. Um, I got to work in a back shop where I was crash recovery. So I worked like heavier maintenance, things that require a lot of like really specific measurements and adjustments and things like that. A lot of, um, the, the, the normal guy on the flight line, your, your new mechanic just wouldn't have the expertise or knowledge. So, so I was able to progress through and do a lot of different things uh, as I went through, um, you know, obviously a completely different world than what I'm sitting in now. You know, I spent almost no time in a chair, <laughs> a chair and a computer was a thing that you did at the end of the day when you were having to take time for uh, the work that you did, just to make sure that you had appropriate tracking and everything on, on what you had been doing. But it, it was very rare. Like this, air conditioning in the building is a <laughs> unique experience yeah. for me over the last Bless. couple of years. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll count our blessings. That's awesome. So, and that's what I was going to lead to as well. Um, totally different than recruiting. And like most of us, our job before this was probably different. And in some cases it probably aligns, but for the most part it's completely night and day. So, um, I guess in your opinion, did that, uh, help you or hurt you? Do you think? It's, it's kind of, it, <sighs> It's hard to explain. It's it's on a spectrum, I would say. Um, In the beginning, I definitely felt like it hurt me um, just because it was so radically different. Uh, I was learning a lot of new things, and and the comprehension or the the practical application of the things I was learning just wasn't quite there. Uh, There was a lot of things that made sense and I was able to apply, but some of the skill sets that are required to, you know, be autonomous in an office, to, to be able to you know, not have a flight chief or anybody like here in the office with me every day. Like the, you know, I didn't have that absolute discipline to, to handle that. Like the, the, the planning and managing a calendar and, and things like that were just foreign to me. Um, in the beginning, I definitely used it as a crutch a little bit, you know, when, when things weren't going well, or I was having a really hard time, like I was always really quick to be like, man, I'm just a crew chief. Like that, that's, that's who I am. And that, that that's why this is hard. That, and, I, and I wanted to use that uh, more often than I should have. Uh, as it went, you know, and as times progressed, I mean, I'm over two years into this job now, uh, that's changed. You know, those things just happen over time. I got better at that because I just kept doing it. Um, I think now the fact that I was a crew chief and the fact that I have that maintenance experience really helps because 
it's a job that's readily available. It's something that, that we want to put people in just because the Air Force needs that. And if I'm selling the needs of the Air Force, I mean, I've got firsthand experience. I, I can tell them exactly how it is. Good, bad, indifferent. Everything about that that life, what it's like to to get dirty every day and work long hours and just being able to see the, like the fruits of your labor sort of thing. So I, in the beginning, I I didn't really uh, like being in this position because it was so hard and there were so many things I had to learn. And and I really felt like being a crew chief was, was making this, you know, almost impossible. But then as I went through it, like it almost became a strength because I want people to want to do what I did and I can tell them what it was like and they can see the good and they can see the bad. Uh, and, And I feel like that's really help propel me along the way by being able to just communicate in a way that other people wouldn't. If you've never been a crew chief, if you've never been maintenance, if you've never had those long grumpy days where you're out in the rain and the cold and all that stuff, like it's hard to to communicate how that can be fun sometimes. Like just like the, the things that come with it, that's more than just like the title of the job or the work you do. Like there's just something about like being able to to show them what that was like and, and, you know, relate to them. So. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not from the maintenance world so a lot of things maintenance related I know nothing about um, the main thing I hate is when people ask me what type of plane is what that are <laughs> I have no idea okay that's I, what Google's <laughs> for <laughs> uh, I know an F-16 and I think a U-2 for the most part but um, any other things I really don't know okay so that's pretty cool so I'm glad that you take some pieces of your career field and allow it to uh, help you in your recruiting efforts and we're going to talk about some of the amazing things you've done but you know I'm sure you can remember just like I can we both were in the same recruiting school when we got to recruiting school um, at the time that may have seemed like the hardest thing in the world (laughs) you know going through it and what I wouldn't give to go back to recruiting school no joke uh, (laughs) off the bag you know so I guess in your opinion what are some rookie recruiter challenges that you know from recruiting school going through it thinking it's going to be one way and you get to the field and it's totally different. Um, what, what are some common wiki uh, challenges you've had? Cause just like you've had them, I'm sure there's other people struggling right now with those same challenges. So one of the big things that you see is recruiting school is very sales heavy. Um, it, you know, all those scenarios that we go through, all the things that you practice it, is how to, to sell people. Uh, it, it's, you know, you know, finding their needs and, and tying all that stuff in. And, you know, you, you learn to play that game a little bit. Like it is, it's, it's all scripted. You're always dealing with someone that's not really buying the Air Force. You're talking to technical sergeants and master sergeants on the other side uh, that are pretending to be civilians. So it, it becomes you know kind of scripted and kind of routine and you learn a way in, in sales it's that that you can't there's so many variables in a real you know appointment with somebody when you're trying to if they're on the fence about the air force and you're trying to really sell them you know the skill set the 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 bones of what they teach you is phenomenal and it works but it doesn't always go exactly the way you've practiced it for those two months that you're in recruiting school um so there's a lot to learn with that, you know, until you have a live person in front of you and you get to start talking to them and, and actually going through it and you're looking for real answers, not something that's on a piece of paper. Uh, there's just no way to, to prepare for that. And, and that's just a, a you got to keep doing it. You know, that's one of those faith in the system, faith in how the sales structure works and, and just keep applying it. It becomes more natural. It becomes more conversational. It goes from like awkwardly staring at each other, waiting for answers to, you know, you, you just learn how to read people a little bit better and get stuff out of them. Uh, so, so that's a challenge trying to find a, a way to transition that the things you learn in a classroom and in a controlled environment to, to the real world. Um, 
the other thing that and I know because we were in school together, the thing that we hardly did anything of in recruiting school is using Afris. And Afris by itself, the nature of it changing so much, you know, there's always something new to learn. There's always a new functionality. Um, but even the routine stuff that I take for granted now because we've been doing it so long, like filling out all the case file forms and knowing what blocks to sign and, and how to process everything forward. Like when I started doing this, it was all paper forms. And then we transitioned to all digital. Well, now we've transitioned to all click to sign. So there's always something changing. And if you don't like, you know, I, I got lucky. I had an office partner in the beginning that was able to help me with that and like guide me through and create like a little cheat sheet for me. So I didn't miss signatures. I didn't miss forms, but learning how to do all that stuff in Afris and, and take time for all the things that you're doing and stay on top of it. Like that, that's a real learning curve. Uh, and, and you see that I mean, for me, for the first six months, and even now there's times where it feels like I spend more time documenting and updating things and putting things in than I do, you know, really with an applicant in front of me. Uh, so that, that takes time. And, and again, a lot of that is just taking the time to know your system, to know what it can do and what it can't do. If there's you know more efficient ways to do it, um, even now I find new stuff in there all the time like that allow me to go in and, and send emails to 20 people at the same time or allow me to send text messages to, to big batches of people through the system that for the first year and a half I didn't know existed. <laughs> and I was taking triple the time to do some of those things. Um, you know, and I, I don't know that that's a failure on the recruiting school side of things, but I mean, I know it took me a long time. And from a lot of the rookies that I, I've worked with since I've been here, like that, that seems to be the thing. It's like you spend a lot of time in front of the computer trying to figure out a system that you know, the recruiting school is just not designed to teach you that stuff. So trying to figure that, that out uh, can, can create some, some delays, some, some long days trying, trying to stay on top of it. Um, you know, other than adjusting your sales skills to, to a real person and, and trying to figure out how, how the computer system works, um, I mean, the time management, the planning thing, that's stuff that's, you know, they talk about it in recruiting school and they, they preach it a lot and you, you, you hear a lot about it. Uh, but it's another one of those, until you really do it, you don't know. I mean, I remember in recruiting school, we had to make like an annual plan and a monthly plan and a daily plan. And, and it's easy to put it on. <laughs> yeah, like you have to account for that time. It's easy to put it on paper. Like when you say, I'm going to do this stuff. But then when that's real life and you have to start like looking at it and you know, you've got all four of your P1s to go to and you've got three P2s and then you've got like four P3s and you got to fit them all into a month and you got to hit all those schools and you got to get everything done and you've also got to find time for initial appointments and you've got to find time to, to do your follow-ups and make your phone calls and, and uh, that can be overwhelming until you really get a hang of how to how to mitigate some of that stuff and how to how to make it work better for you um, and again that being a crew chief and coming from a background that like I showed up to work and there was a board with jobs on it and I just went and did those jobs and when they're done if the radio didn't go off with another job like we were done that was all the time management and planning I had to do there was a guy that that was his job was to put stuff on the board to make sure I knew what to do so it, I, I struggled with that a lot just trying to figure out how am I going to do all of this stuff and do it effectively uh, so, so that it's not a waste of time because I mean you can't afford in, in this job we're, we're busy enough and our zones are big enough you can't afford to waste any more time than you absolutely have to everything has to be efficient everything has to have a purpose and if I mean when you find yourself doing things that don't feel fruitful or, or don't you know if you can look back in retrospect and be like 
that was a waste of time. Like I didn't get anything out of that. that that's when you have to reevaluate and figure out like, what can I do in that situation that is more fruitful, that will be beneficial because you know, the, the more time you waste, the less time you have for yourself, the less time you have for your family. And that's when all the pressures and the stresses and everything start building. So, so making the most of, of every second of every day and making it all count is definitely an important skill set you've got to learn as you go through this stuff. Definitely. I mean, those seem like some very reasonable challenges. And I can say myself, I've dealt with some of them as well. So, I mean, let's talk about, you know, uh, uh, work-life balance, because that's kind of like a, uh, uh, elephant in the room. I feel like it's, it's one of those things where we know it exists and it's always a conversation of you have to have a work-life balance, but it's a lot easier said than done most times. And obviously you've been successful. I mean, we're talking 26 uh, sessions in the past, you know, consistently maybe in the past 10 years on average, and you put in 13 more than that number, which is amazing. It's record-breaking in a zone like this. So you have to be doing something right. Do you feel like realistically you're able to keep that work-life balance with breaking those records and just a typical recruiter that may be trying to overexceed? Um, how important do you think it is to make that work-life balance work? It's incredibly important. Um, this job is stressful as it is. Like the, you don't need any additional stressors in your life when you're doing this because I mean, a lot of it's self-inflicted. It's, it's stresses we put on ourselves, but I mean, the, there are things that are going to weigh on you and, and weigh you down a little bit. Um, you know, you have to find ways to balance that. You don't want to put more on your plate uh, again than you absolutely have to. Uh, it is hard. I mean, I definitely through the struggles when I was down. Cause I mean, my first year I was down six bodies with, you know, five months left in the fiscal year. And I didn't see a path out of that. Like, um, I, I was able to, to really grind and put in some long hours and, and get it done. Um, and finished one body above ATB for that year. But I mean, it was, you know, it was with a lot of extra work. It was with a lot of extra labor and everything that went into that. Um, you know, that stuff wears you down, you know, like there, there are, times when you know you just kind of have to step back uh and, and realize what's most important you know i'm not a super i'm not a much of an alpha you know i kind of blend in a lot of the places i go i don't necessarily try on my own accord to like take the lead on things i'm not very awards driven uh and things like that so the the things that you know motivate me you know like if i finish 13 bodies up that's great. You know, I was able to, you know, exceed all expectations, you know, this past year. Um, but it wasn't for any trophies or anything like that. That was, it was just a byproduct of me doing what I figured out worked here. Um, if at any point now in my time in recruiting, like if I felt like that was taking away from my wife or my daughter, uh, I would definitely have to reevaluate that. You know, if I was back to that point where I'm working 12 hour shifts, five days a week and, and coming in on Saturdays to, to meet with parents and, and get caught up on stuff, like if I'm stretching myself that thin, uh, to me at that point, like I, I have to fix something like it's not worth it. I don't want to sacrifice my marriage. I don't want to sacrifice my family, you know, for this job, as long as I'm meeting my expectations and doing what's expected of me. Um, if overachieving comes with that, then that's great. Uh, but, it, but if I'm ATB and I'm at a hundred percent, uh, I'm also happy with that because, you know, eventually I'm going to be done with recruiting and, and beyond that, I'm eventually going to be done with the air force and, and that'll all go. Uh, and you know, I, I really hope, you know, Lord willing, my, my family's still there with me. You know, I'll have my wife and my daughter. They're, they're more important at the end of the day to me than, than just about anything else. 
so, so you have to, it has to be more than lip service. You have to legitimately find that work-life balance. If that means a couple of long days so that you can work with your flight chief and take a Friday. So, I mean, I've done that a couple of times where it's like, I've got everything done. I'm above ATB. I get caught up on everything. And I took my daughter to see frozen. So and it's a big thing for her. Like I, that was just something I had to do. It was an important memory to make with her. And it was a way to, to help keep me more grounded and more sane to be able to plug in and do those extra things uh, that can be hard to do when you're staying super busy with everything all the time. Cool. And, um, you know, work-life balance, like I said, is usually easier said than done. And um, what do you say to a rookie recruiter or the recruiters out there that may uh, be struggling making goal and, you know, like for yourself, exceeding that goal? It may seem a little easier to take those Fridays and, you know, have that time to make that work-life balance. What do you say to a recruiter that's out there thinking to themselves, you know, maybe a goal day, I can never take a goal day or I can never take a Friday off or it seems like I could never – stop this job i mean is there any advice you have for them so you have to see the big picture on everything um you know it's easy to get sucked into that moment of man i just missed goal last month or i'm down four or five bodies on the year and, and it feels like you're not gonna ever overcome that um even in those moments you can't sacrifice the rest of your life to try to you know, overcome that. And you're not going to do it all at once. If you're down, you know, under ATB, like statistically, you're not going to make up six bodies in a month. If you, you know, get a goal of two or three and you six down and you book two or three, like maybe, I mean, we've had some dragon slayers in this squadron, but for my zone, it was never realistic for me to expect that I would be able to make it all up in one month. Uh, you know, I, I knew that I would have to trust the process, uh, and, and, just keep grinding. Like just let, let it work itself out. Keep doing the things that you know work. And for each zone, that's going to be a little bit different. Um, but, but no, you don't have to make it all up at once. You can make small, I mean, go one over a month. And if that's realistic for your zone, if you can put in that work and go one up, if you're down, then you can come back with that. Um, it doesn't have to I know I got the advice whenever I was a rookie and I was struggling uh, and just working all the time and multiple season recruiters told me there's no recruiting emergencies like in recruiting, like nothing is going to be life or death. Uh, and it feels like it is like there's a hundred percent times when everything feels like an emergency. (laughs) Ship they can't. That yeah. Like, I mean, your stomach just turns over thinking about it. It, it, It's, it's tough to to go through some of that stuff. But again, you're not going to make up deficits overnight. Um, You have to trust what's working for you. In my case, when I was down big on the year, the thing that got me out was schools. Like I kind of ran out or in my mind, you know, being only six, eight months in the seat. uh, I didn't see a grad market. I was having a really hard time bringing them in. Um, But I slowly made it up over the summer. You know, I worked overtime in my schools. So I was processing seniors that weren't doing me any good at that time. And they were just sitting on the queue. But when, you know, April and May and those months started coming up, I had people that were rolling over. I had people that were in debt you know, for six, eight months at a time. Uh, but you know, they paid off and they were able to book over the summer. And then my soft books came in and those counted towards my goal as well. And instead of, you know, still being six down and just making goal every month, I was able to add one or two here and there. Uh, and that was something that, you know, 
I, I did it this last year. I, I've been able to do that both years that I've been here. The difference in this past year and what was able to propel me and, and have my numbers so high was the fact that I wasn't down going into my summer months. You know, I went into uh, March and April when we finally started booking some seniors and I was still sitting at just above ATB. So when I started booking all those extra, all that other work that doesn't look like anything at the time because it's a senior that can't book anything right now, they paid off in the long run. So I was able to, to make up deficits the first year, and I was able to, to pad my numbers the second year to really push my stuff uh, even further forward. So for, for that stuff, I mean, if you feel like you're buried, if you feel like you're, you're never going to get out, uh, trust your system. Trust your schools, especially in rural areas where you don't have a walk-in market and your phone doesn't ring. Schools are where you're going to get everything. Like you build it up small schools. Like if you've got P3s and P2s that have small graduating classes, one or two kids out of each of those schools is a win. I mean, your bigger schools, like the ones that you know are going to pay off that are going to give you several. I mean, those, those will come, but if you can like hit all of your schools and grind and like, I mean, I have 17 schools. If I get one kid out of every single school, I mean, my, my goal here for the year will most likely be around 26 bodies for the entire year. So if I get one senior out of every school, then I'm almost there. You know, that doesn't make up the grad market. That doesn't make up the fact that I got a P one. That's probably going to give me seven or eight. You know, I, I can get there. So for me, and I think it's common for most rural areas, like where you don't have a walk-in market and there's not a ton of grads because they all leave, <laughs> like they all go somewhere else, uh, you know, working the schools and, and making that grind and getting them before anybody else gets them. First to contact, first to contract, get in the schools, make contact, sell them on the Air Force, show them how this can be a good path forward, and, and you'll open up a ton of doors, and you'll, you'll really be able to, I mean, make up that. It's never over, you know? Like no matter how bad it seems in recruiting, it's never completely over. There's always places where you can make up ground, and you just have to understand that. No emergencies. Take the time for yourself. Take the time for your family. This will be here tomorrow. And I've been subject to, you know, not seeing that 100%. My wife has reminded me about it before. So sometimes you got to set the phone down. Sometimes you got to stop looking at Afris. But uh, if you keep pushing, you keep working, like you'll get there. Never put this before everything else. Don't sacrifice too much to make this work. Definitely. And I definitely agree. Um, so I like that. First to contact, first to contract. Sounds uh, <laughs> sounds very armyist. Yeah, I think I stole that from the Marine Corps. They, they say that all the time. That's why they like push so hard. They're trying to get there before we do because they know if we sell it before they sell it, they're never going to flip them. They have different tools than what we have. There's more visibility for them. So we have to do a little bit more to make sure that, that our branding is out there. Uh, so, so be in your schools, be, create awareness, make sure that, that everyone knows, use those back doors to get into your schools if you have to. It's worked really well for me. Um, outside of that, I mean, taking care of people, taking care of your applicants, uh, your leads, uh, your, your deppers, your rappers when they come back, that stuff pays off more than just about anything else. The way you handle a disqualified lead matters as much as the way you handle a guy with a, a completely simple pre-screen and a 98 on his ASVAB. I mean, you have to be consistent with the way you treat people. So if you have a guy that comes in that you just know there's no way because of law violations or medical stuff that, that he's going to be able to get in, you got to treat him with the same dignity and respect as you would treat anybody else. And then if he can join, if it's someone that is and they become an applicant through the whole process, being nice to people 
goes a really long way. And in recruiting, uh, you know, especially when you look at some of the other branches, like that friendly, nice, like lovable, taking care of people thing is not there. You know, they take a lot more cutthroat approach than we tend to sometimes. And, and you hear a lot of negative stories, a lot of bad experiences with recruiters uh, when they're dealing with other branches. So I try to separate myself from that. You know, we have to keep a clear line that we're not friends, like we're not buddies, but I do care about you as an applicant, about you as a person, about your family, about, about everything because that matters. And once you dip in and you're getting ready to go, being there for you all along the way, and, and again, it has to be more than lip service. It has to be a genuine, they have to feel like you care because you do have to care. You know, take care of them, take care of their family. Um, when they come home on wrap, you know, the same thing. You know, be invested in their life and the career that you help them start. And all that stuff is going to come full circle. That kid that was DQ'd because maybe he had like a traumatic brain injury or something and he just wasn't going to be able to join, but you were nice to him and you took care of him and, and you, you know, showed some like remorse almost that he what you weren't able to help him. You know, he may have a friend or a brother or someone that can join, you know, it, the way you deliver that, you know, the opposed to just that constant perpetuation, like you're digging for leads, but the, you know, just, you know, being nice. And when he finds someone or if, you know, he can't do it, but you were nice enough to him and kind enough, you know, he knows someone else who can join, he'll refer him to you. My, what got me through the, the tough months that February, March, April, May of this past fiscal year was the fact that I was working on perpetuation. I had that first batch of guys that had gone to tech school and come home and were on wrap, and they perpetuated to me. They gave me leads, and they gave me qualified applicants. I mean, I still, to this day, today, I got a text message from a guy that was asking me about qualifications for a friend of his that wants to join. Unfortunately, that guy probably won't be able to because of the circumstances, but, I mean, it, it, it just starts to happen that way. The, the, the more you take care of people, the more you care. And then, you know, the better someone's recruiting experience is, the more likely they're going to feed the system back again. You know, if, if they feel like I was some big jerk that never cared about them and they were just a number and I was chasing metrics, that they're not going to, they're not going to come back. You know, they're not going to, if they feel like they got, you know, whatever gypped, if they got, you know, just a negative experience and bamboozled in the process, they probably won't tell their friends about it. They probably won't send their, their little brother to come see me and join. So that whole taking care of people, you know, that, that that's going to pay off and it paid off for me. Um, I get reminded of that all the time. Like, I mean, I, it's one of the things I asked my rappers when I come back, I was like, so in, in basic training, like what was your experience? You know, how did, how did it go? How was tech school? And I always want to know, like from all the other people that you were with when you were in basic training, like what did they have to say about their recruiters? Because I want to know, because I know the people in my flight and I know how we do business and I know, you know, the way that we, we've got everything set up and, and we're doing right by people. But unfortunately, even in the Air Force, that's not necessarily the case. And there's a lot of people out there. Uh, I mean, from the testimonies I'm getting from my rappers coming home that didn't like their recruiters, had really bad experiences, like just felt neglected and not cared about. And they got that feeling like a number experience. And that's not good big picture for what we're trying to do. And I don't ever want my guys to feel like that. I want them to feel like I legitimately cared and that I took care of them and had their best interest in mind all along, whatever that means for them, whatever their needs were, whatever it was that they wanted out of this. I want to make sure that they feel like I was personally invested in that. And I feel like I've successfully done that. 
And that's a long game sort of thing. That That's not the thing that pays off right away because I didn't see anything pay off from that until my first, you know, a session started coming back from tech school. So, I mean, it, it took eight months to a year before I started having rappers come home. There were people that I put in. But when so for starters, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend shoes. Uh, that's a terrible hobby to get into. It's so expensive. And one of those things they, you know, my wife constantly reminds me about the number of shoes I have and how expensive they are. Um, but for me that worked, you know, like, like that, like young men today are just into shoes. It's the thing that everybody does. And it just so happened that that hobby that I have lines up with a lot of guys, you know, I, I do it a little differently than they do, you know, as far as like, getting that stuff and waiting in line and buying stuff online, but it, it, it bridges a gap. It makes me more real to them because, you know, they see us, honestly, my, my perspective on that is they view us as the cops, you know, they, they see us as police officers. They see us as these authority figures, you know, when them, especially those first meetings before you really get them out of their shell, you know, they, they talk to you like they're talking to their principal or their dad or, or something like that. Like it's, it's not as fluid as, as you want it to be. So for me, like shoes was the thing, you know, wearing Yeezys and wearing J's and stuff like that, like helped me like really bridge a gap with some of the younger generation. I kind of look like them. I walk like them. I talk like them. We dress the same. They like that stuff. And it's corny, but like I, I sometimes if I know their sneaker heads, I use that to be, you know, it's like, Hey man, like the air force has the money for that. You know, like everyone jokes that the army sells people on buying the charger, you know, join the army and you'll, you'll have a charger within the first year. Um, you know, for me, I, I've done that. It's like, you know, think of the expendable income you have. It's like the air force buys my shoes for me. That's what this is. Like the, this is my income. This is my job. This is what I do to make money. And I make enough of it and have enough left over that if I want to buy 200, $300 pair of shoes, I can do it. Um, and that helped me. Uh, there's lots of other ways. Like it doesn't have to be shoes. You have to find you. You have to find yourself. You know, there, there's there are ways to connect to people on, on every single level, and you just have to find that middle ground where where it all does finally line up. Um, I'm a collector. Like shoes are just one of the things that I collect. Like I collect comic books and I play board games and I do lots of nerdy stuff. Like if you could see like my behind me, like the camera doesn't quite go high enough, but I mean, I've got pop vinyls, like little figurines of everything of X-Men and star Wars and pro wrestling. It's like, those are just the things that I like. Those are the things that I do for fun. And that bridges the gap with some people. Not everyone's into sneakers. A lot of people like Rick and Morty, though, and I've got Rick and Morty vinyls behind me. Um, I, I use that. Find ways to connect on, on my level um, that, that brings us together. Uh, I have had a lot of success in my zone um, with taking back doors, I, I guess you would say. Um, going through the front door of a school, like by that meaning, like talking to a guidance counselor, getting these permissions and going and setting up your table in the lunchroom, uh, only has success to a certain point. The places where I've found the most success is by making friends and, and building relationships with people, uh, that are outside of that normal chain of command. Uh, one of my biggest schools, I, I got to be really close with the wrestling coach, well, the wrestling coach is also the uh, sports performance coach. So he teaches a class every single day, uh, all six periods. Uh, through the whole day, it's, it's about 180, 190 students. And anytime I want, I can go into that class and I can teach the whole class. And I can work them out for 30 minutes and then I can talk to them for 10 and I can have them fill out surveys at the end. And every time, if I wanted them, I could have 180 leads uh, from freshmen through seniors. 
and I have full access. He just kind of sits there and is there to keep them on track and holler at them whenever they're, you know, getting rowdy and stuff, but he gives me full access. Uh, that's not something you see every day where a teacher just lets you come in and, and take over. Uh, we built that relationship because we both still like pro wrestling. <laughs> like I'm almost 33 years old. He's in his forties. But we like that stuff. Now, you know, The Rock. Are we talking about? Okay. Yeah, we're talking about The Rock. We're talking about Stone Cold. We're talking about, like, the, the cheesy scripted stuff. You know, that it's one of those things, again, from rural Kentucky. <laughs> we grew up on that. Uh, never really outgrew it. Uh, but it helped build that bridge. Um, I've worked really hard in my ROTCs, you know, getting in with that. Some of them are, are small. You know, it's not like, you know, you're going in there and having, you know, a ton of kids to pick from. But kids in ROTC already at least have some sort of interest. You know, ROTC, even at the junior level in high school, is not an easy thing to do. It's a club that requires you to shave and cut your hair and wear a uniform and go to drill meets and, and learn military history, whether it's Air Force or otherwise. Uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. So that's a pool of kids, as long as they're qualified, like that you can pick from because they're already interested enough to give up part of their high school life to do pseudo military things. So, you know, getting in with that stuff and, and relating to them, making sure they know who I am and know my name. You know, like I think that's the real key is like finding those ways in with those kids that have the potential to join that you can, you know, get onto and, and, and sell from a young age. I mean, I've got guys right now that are ready to go to MEPS and that are in my depth uh, that were sophomores whenever I first showed up here, you know, like, but we're working together and, you know, I'm in my third year now and they're seniors and, and they're ready to go. You know, like they're, they, we've just been talking and they know me and they see me at the mall and I just keep showing back up and showing back up and showing back up. And the more they see me, the, the more we build that. And Sometimes they have no interest and they don't want to come in, but the more they see you and the more they hear about it and the more their friends do it, yeah. you just build it up. And then the next thing you know, they're in there and that kid that, you know, was falling asleep and putting his headphones in in a classroom presentation is sitting there and he's through the roof excited because, you know, he wants to go be a crew chief like I was. So for me, getting out into my zone and finding people and finding the guys that can join was, was more a matter of finding a way in. You know, find a way to connect. Like once you have their ear, once you have, you know, you know, them listening, like find, find that way to connect, whether it's shoes or cars or whatever it is, everybody has something that they do. We're not all just air force all the time. We're not all, you know, old dads that sit on the couch and watch Jeopardy. (laughs) Even though it's starting to feel like I'm becoming more of that. Like there's more to us than that. There's places where we can connect uh, with anybody, even when they're younger, because we used to be that age too. And you can find a way to, to connect. So like once you can get their ear and once you can connect with them, I mean, other than that, just finding a way to get to them, finding a way in other than the traditional methods. That's it's worked for me over and over again. You know, even though some of the schools that have tough policies about what they'll let you do there, like teachers are pretty autonomous within their school. They let teachers do a lot more than what the guidance council will ever let on that they do. You know, so being, being able to get in and, and get on that ground level and being able to have that captive audience for me, that's what changed the game. <laughs> like there's a big difference between standing at a table in a lunchroom, handing out pamphlets and waving at kids and saying hi as they walk by, opposed to having them sit there in front of you and have to listen and have to hear what you have to say, because that's when you can really get through to them. If you say something interesting enough, get that thing that makes their eyes open a little wider, or their ears perk up. Uh, that, that's where you start getting in. So, so being able to, to get a hold of them and, and share that information uh, makes all the difference. And it's not always 
clear cut the way the school systems are sending it to you to do. Like it, not everything has to go through a guidance counselor. It can go through a wrestling team or a football team or a basketball team or beta club or chat, whatever, <laughs> whatever your avenue in is, you got to be creative and you got to find it. I mean, there, there, there's something out there. It's someone you can connect to. I've learned so much from that too. Like I did not wrestle <laughs> growing up in Kentucky. We didn't even have a wrestling team. So like, mean to me again wrestling was pro wrestling that's what i thought it was so getting in with this stuff and like getting to know these guys and like going to some of the practices and going to the meets like i i understand how it's scored now i understand the points i i get how it all works and i mean sometimes like i've I've just showing up if the kids that are there that are on the wrestling team know who you are and they see you at one of those like i i go to them just as a fan and just sit there and, and watch and they see you and they appreciate that that's one more point in our column like if you're competing you know against other branches or against colleges for something to like convince that kid to be there like you took interest in him like whether it was directly that one specific student or not like you being there and like giving him a high five as he walks off the mat or like letting him see you in the crowd and like congratulating him like that's a point in your column like i mean when if you're if that's someone that you think has potential that you think you can sell like it makes you them feel like you care you know it's it's something being there for them and, and creating that experience just, just by showing up Go pay five bucks for a ticket, sit there all day, and watch wrestling matches. Whether you understand it or not, it gets you in. And it builds a little bit more of a relationship than you had before. Because I've been to five or six wrestling tournaments now, and I've never seen another branch there. It was I was an Air Force guy sitting there in sweatpants and an Air Force hoodie, cheering on wrestling that I barely understood. But I got a lot of high fives <laughs> when I was walking out of that gym. So it works. It's worth it. Like, put, put the effort in and, and you'll see it open up. Stay in your schools. Work your schools. Even if it feels like you're not getting there, presence alone makes a difference. Like, that whole, they, they say you have to see something seven times before you buy it. Like, that, that's common in marketing. Like, I mean, I believe that. I mean, I've bought things off of the internet on Amazon because Facebook kept reminding me about it. And I was finally like, okay, I guess <laughs> that does seem like a good thing your presence in a school matters you being there your flyers being there sending you know rappers that are home you know just being out there and making sure that people are aware that we are here and that we're an option that's going to make a difference uh it may not feel like it right away it may be one of those things you feel like you're going through the motions and nothing fruitful is coming from it but it is like just that awareness use your marketing funds put, put the billboards up put the the flyers everywhere uh, we got four or five signs out along veterans parkway right now um, the road that the office is on just kind of directing people this way it's got phone numbers and addresses and, and we're, we're trying to utilize any way to to just have that recognition if they drive by that sign they may not notice it the first nine times at least not consciously but they're seeing that air force symbol every single time they drive that road uh, so create the awareness you know make sure you're out there that you're, you're making sure that people know that the air force is here because uh, we're not as big and as popular of a brand necessarily as the army is they're huge. Unless my head is bent, you dig?